0: I grew up in a place that is ranked in the top three foggiest places on earth. I guess you can't be number one in all the good stuff. Last summer, Jen and I were visiting and we were hiking one day. Yes, you heard that right. I was hiking. And uh, we took some pictures of fog that was rolling in. Uh, as we were doing our hike, when you're in the fog, you lose vision, you lose perspective, you lose your sense of direction, you're engulfed, you may even hit a moose with your car. Telling you that from experience. That's another story for another time. An expression that we sometimes hear, maybe we've even used, is this expression of being in a fog, in a fog, and and in a fog means to be in a state of perplexity, to be unable to understand, to be bewildered in a fog. Today we're going to be continuing our series, which is entitled Critical Questions, we're considering some of the questions that Jesus asked in John's gospel and specifically how these questions relate to us. And so far, we've focused on what do you want? Where are they? Do you want to get well? Where should we buy bread? Today's question is, do you have any fish? Now, if biblical times took place where I'm from, Rather than being 14 verses, this would basically be two words. This is a a whole, we can have this whole conversation where I come from in two words. The first word is earn. And the answer is narn. Do you have any fish? Earn. One word. You only need one word. My family makes fun of me that when I answer a text, I just say, "k." you don't need a lot of words where I come from to communicate what you want to say. Jesus asked this question to his disciples as a reminder to them that the promise, the purpose, the plan for their lives had not changed, even though the circumstances suggested otherwise. And so I want us to see today... That unexpected circumstances do not diminish God's promise, God's purpose, God's plan for our lives. Thank you, Karen, for reading John 21, verses 1 to 14 earlier. Uh, You know, I gotta tell you, I love sitting there hearing someone else read the scripture before I preach. I just love that. And so thank you for doing that this morning. The first thing I want us to to see today is perplexity. John 21 verses 1 to 14 is the precursor to the reinstatement of Peter by Jesus after Peter denied Jesus three times prior to the crucifixion. Now, Pastor Mark talked about that part last week, and so my intention today is to focus on what leads up to that event, which is the first 14 verses in the first part of the chapter. Verse 15 begins to focus on Peter specifically, but the previous 14 verses focus on these seven disciples, this group of disciples that encounter Jesus on this morning on the shores of Galilee. These 14 verses, and I encourage you to keep your Bible app or Uh, Your Bibles open and follow along, but you'll notice that these 14 verses begin and also end with a reference to Jesus revealing himself, appearing, showing himself to his disciples. And this is actually critically important because the circumstances that are about to take place require that the disciples encounter Jesus personally. If they're going to be reestablished in their promise, in their purpose, in their plan that Jesus has for them. The timing of this encounter is likely somewhere between the second week after Jesus' resurrection and before Jesus ascends into heaven. The setting is the Sea of Galilee. It's the place where most of them are from. It's home. And we're told that there are seven of the 11 disciples together. Why are they there? Well, number one, it's home. And if Kawhi Leonard can go home, they can go home too. Just throwing that out there. But there's nowhere like home. So they're home. In Mark 14, uh, see what I did there? I actually got some people's attention who were napping. Right there, I got them. Right there. In verse 14 of Mark, in chapter 14 of Mark, Jesus predicted that his arrest would result in the scattering of the disciples and Peter's uh, denial of him. And he said, after all of that happens, I want to meet you after in Galilee. In Mark chapter 16, when Jesus encountered the women at the tomb after the resurrection, he told them to go and tell the disciples that he was going to go ahead and for them to meet him in Galilee. And so they are in Galilee for one reason. They are there, yes, because it's home, but really they're there out of obedience to Jesus. He asked them to meet him in Galilee and they're there. And while they're acting in obedience, they're certainly perplexed about exactly what's happening. It wasn't long ago that they were in the same area. And Jesus walked up to them and gave them that after many encounters over a period of time, said, listen, today is the day I want you to leave this behind and follow me to become fishers of men. And so they committed to following him on that that day and they spent the past few years learning and listening to his teaching and believing that he's the Messiah, that the kingdom had come. And so they believed him. Now, I want us to notice that even though Jesus is clear on who he is, and he's clear on what his plan was, I mean, Jesus didn't hide the truth. He told them what was going to happen. They could hear it. They heard it. He he talked to them about it. But in their own minds, as they're hearing apples, they're saying, yes, yes, oranges, oranges. And they're formulating in their minds their own ideas of how what Jesus is saying is going to play out. But what they are thinking and what Jesus is saying is not consistent. And so things have now happened that they didn't expect. Because in their minds, it wasn't supposed to go like this. And it's impacted them. Peter fell into denial. The others ran away and hid in fear. Everything that is happening to them is different than they expected. It's different than they anticipated. And the truth is, at this point, it seems like nothing is happening at all. They're just in a vacuum. They're in a fog. The purpose, the promise, the plan that Jesus had for them seems lost. They're not sure what's happening now or what's going to happen next, if anything at all. They're living in the tension between obedience and perplexity. They're walking by faith. Not by sight, but without question, they're in a fog. Secondly, we see confirmation. Peter decided that he was going to go fishing. And the other said, we're going fishing with you. Now, some people see this as a decision to abandon the call of Jesus And go back to what they were doing before Jesus' call. I think that makes for some exciting preaching. But I don't think that's what's happening here. And because, you know, I'm an expert. They must be wrong. But I don't agree with that. They're fishermen. They're back in their home area where all of their stuff is. And their families are. And and, and their familiarities are. What are the chances that maybe their family needs some fish? What are the chances that they themselves are hungry? Maybe, just maybe, they actually had a career that they enjoyed. Just imagine that for a minute. Maybe they actually liked fishing. They enjoyed it. And so doing something familiar that comforts you is normal. It's a normal thing to do when the circumstances of life are causing you to be confused and perplexed. We tend to gravitate to the things that bring us comfort and joy. And so they pushed off the boat from shore. John specifically tells us about 100 meters. And they fished all night without success. In the early morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but but they didn't recognize him. Maybe it was foggy. He called out, friends, Arn, Narn, and he said, why don't you cast the net to the other side? You know, guys, have you ever been working on something and it's not working right and your wife comes in the room and she says, why don't you do this? And you don't say anything but you just kind of look. Like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my whole life, right? Like, what difference would that possibly make? I'm sure, ladies, you've had the same experience. We actually just come in and take it over and do it. That's our problem. Why don't you throw the net on the other side? They don't know it's Jesus. Jesus. They didn't go, well, you know, it's a dumb idea, but it's Jesus, so let's do it. They don't know it's Jesus. They have no idea. They have no reason to believe there's fish on the other side. Maybe they think that he can see something from there that they're not seeing. I don't know. But without knowing it's Jesus, without knowing any reason for fish to be on the other side, they just do it. They put the net out on the other side. And when they did the net was so filled with fish that it says they couldn't haul it in. It was too heavy to pull it in. And in that moment of of having so many fish so quickly after a night of fishing with nothing happening and the, the, the catch being so, like, let's be serious, it's miraculous. One of the disciples says, hey, I know who that is. I know him. That's Jesus. It's Jesus. Miracles have a way of opening our eyes to the presence of Jesus. Well, when Peter heard this, he quietly moved the boat into shore and gracefully disembarked. Actually, no. He jumped into the water. This guy's a bad habit of that. You never noticed that? He's always getting out of the boat. (laughs) Of course he did. I mean, the others are gracefully trying to wrap up what they're doing to get there. Oh no, he's got to get into the water. He's got to go. Now we're told that there are 153 fish. Now I want you to know that since the early church fathers, people have been spinning a, a, a theory on why 153, and I'm sure you've heard some, very intellectual and compelling argument as to why that might be. Being a simple man, I, I don't really think there's any significance to the number other than to show that whoever's recording is as, shows great detail. They're 100 me- uh, meters off and there's 153 fish. I think they're just trying to show us that, wow, there was a lot of fish in that little net, like 153 large fish. We counted them and there was a lot of them. I don't think there's any significance to the number other than to show that this was a miracle. The impossible was made possible. That's the point. Jesus had called them to be fishers of men. He was using fishing, something familiar that they understood as a means to explaining to them a few years ago what their purpose, their promise, their plan for their lives would be. And now he's back in the same location and he is confirming their call through the same means. Circumstances may have gone different than they expected, but their call to follow, him is unchanged. Now, what I find interesting in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said to them, guys, you know, I'm, I'm going to die and, but I want you to know that when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He told them that in John 12, that Jesus' death on the cross would elevate him. Would lift him up, but not just the cross. The cross wasn't just the elevating point. As we look in Scripture, we see that he is elevated beyond the height of the cross. He's elevated to the right hand of the Father, to the very throne of God, where salvation is possible by all who come and are drawn to him. What I find interesting is the word that Jesus uses here I will draw people is the exact same word as is used for the nets in this scripture when it says they hauled the fish into shore. As fishermen, they would draw. They would haul their nets full of fish to themselves. And as fishers of men, they would be a part of the drawing of the hauling people to Jesus. Now, I know that doesn't create a nice little image, but that's what they're doing. They're they're putting their energy and their efforts to bringing people to Jesus. And they're going to have success. And they're going to have success because of the miraculous authority of Jesus. This miracle on the beach is the ultimate object lesson and a confirmation that their original call still stood. Despite the perplexity of their circumstances. And the miraculous authority of Jesus demonstrated to these actual fish would make... The drawing of men and women coming to him equally as miraculous and possible. The third and final thing I want us to see is hospitality. In the last sermon in the series, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children. And we said that Jesus is the ultimate host who extends grace and generosity by welcoming everyone who seeks after him, regardless of their status. perceived value. But we see this same theme here as well. Jesus has a charcoal fire burning on the beach and there's fish and there's bread on it. If you've never eaten on a beach, it is the best food in the world is cooked on a beach. If you ever, this is just for free, okay? We're taking a time out. If you're ever going to eat lobster, you have to eat it on the beach cooked in seawater. If you're ever going to eat mussels, you eat it on a beach. Nothing tastes like it does on a beach. And here he's got fish and bread on the beach. And he says, why don't you guys join me for breakfast? And why don't you bring a few of the other fish that you caught as well? I love how he says that. Why don't you bring some of the fish that you caught? So they dragged the net ashore and brought some of the fish to Jesus. And then Jesus, it says, I mean, can you see the imagery here of the feeding of the 5,000? He distributed it to them. I want us to note more importantly that Jesus' hospitality here included inviting the one who had denied him, not once, not twice, but three times to join him. I want you to notice that Peter's denial took place where? Around a charcoal fire in the courtyard. And his denial included three specific encounters that took him on a a path that led into a fog and perplexity. And in this moment, Jesus has invited him back around a charcoal fire And as we heard last week, three times asked him, Peter, do you love me? Jesus' hospitality, though, is also extended to those who abandoned him, who ran away from him, who've been hiding in fear through this, who now were in Galilee out of obedience, but are confused and perplexed by their circumstances that seemed to suggest to them that their purpose and their promise and their plan was stolen from them through this whole series of circumstances. Jesus' hospitality on the beach that morning was a reminder that his original plan was still unfolding, that their part in it was, was as important on this morning as it ever has been. Despite their misunderstanding, despite their incorrect assumptions, despite their perceived failures and shortcomings through all of this, they are still welcome to be a part of Jesus and the work of the kingdom. And he says, friends, come back in. Two things to consider today. One, in a fog. There are promises that we find in the word of God that are for all of those who put their trust in Jesus and respond to his call of salvation. Those promises are for every single person in this room. They are not unique to us. They are universal. They're for all who would come to Jesus. But there are also unique promises that as we surrender our lives for Jesus, as he calls us into relationship with him, as he calls us to live out kingdom life, there are promises that are specific to us as individuals. That all of us have different giftings and life experiences and training and opportunities. And God brings all of that together and makes a specific promise to us of how he's going to use us individually and specifically to accomplish his work as we are a part of the bigger part, of the bigger picture. Well, like the disciples, we have a tendency to take these promises that Jesus makes to us and create our own ideas. We imagine when Jesus makes promises to us. How the promises of God are going to unfold in our lives. Are going to play out for us. We imagine, well, God, you promised this on that day in prayer. You really laid that in my heart. And, and so I, I have taken that now. And I've created a scenario of what that's going to look like. Anyone ever do that? Am I the only one that creates the scenario? God has the plan, but I create the scenario. He's very thankful for that because that's less work for him. I create the scenario. We imagine how it's going to unfold. But the truth is, something happens. Called life. And life turns out very different than we imagined. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, but that's not my scenario. That's not what I envisioned when when you laid that promise in my heart. And like the disciples, we're perplexed. We're confused. We don't understand. God, I, I, I thought. I thought. And the result of that is we question. We question God. Is God... Keeping his promise? Because God, if you promise that, uh, just a heads up, this is not that. Or we begin to question ourselves. Do we get it right? Do we get it right? Often concluding through all of that process that the promise, the purpose, the plan of God for us is is no longer a possibility. In light of a reality, how can it be? How is it possible? All of us on our journey of following Jesus will go through moments. If we're lucky, they're just moments. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't use the word lucky. Blessed. If we're blessed, they're just moments. But likely there'll be seasons. Seasons. A perplexity. When the unexpected circumstances of our lives cause us to doubt and to question whether God's plan for us, his purpose for us, his promises to us are still the same. There will be seasons. That our commitment to Jesus will be based on nothing more than pure obedience In a fog with no evidence of a miracle. Now, while we never seek these seasons, and if you do, I don't know how to say this other than say there's something terribly wrong with you. We don't desire these seasons, we don't relish these seasons. Oh, good, my life gets to go to crap. Lucky me. Oh sorry, bless me. We may not desire them, we may not relish them, but they're not wasted seasons, of course, unless we waste them. They're very important seasons. They're very necessary seasons. Because these are the seasons, like the disciples, when our commitment and our obedience to Jesus is tested. It's the seasons when we stop singing, I give you my life, and start living that I've given you my life. That's what happens in these seasons. There are seasons when the Holy Spirit does the deepest rooted work in us to prepare us for what lies ahead. Is that me doing that? These are the seasons when God comes to us and confirms his purpose, his promise, his plan for our lives. We may not understand it. We may question it. It might push us to the brink. But if we hold on to the promises of God in the midst of the fog, eventually the fog is going to lift and there's going to be clarity. But whatever the reality of your circumstances is, whether it's a mental health diagnosis or a, or a physical diagnosis or your marriage just fell apart or you just went through a divorce or you lost someone you love deeply and, and they're gone from your life or your child's life's gone off the rails and you think, all of this has now changed everything. Let me tell you, it has changed Nothing. When it comes to the plan and the purpose and the promises of God for your life. Your circumstances may be different, but God's call for you and his promise to you is not changed by your circumstances. So don't throw it away. Don't throw it away. Because your circumstances say you should. The fog will lift there will come a point of clarity and you will see how all of this somehow makes some semblance of sense to understanding what God was saying to you in the first place. I'm exhausted. All are welcome. I I can't I can't even push the button. Sometimes as followers of Jesus... We take on a role that was never intended for us to take on. The role of deciding the worthiness of who can come to Jesus. Now, I know we know anybody can come to Jesus. Yeah, we say that, but who's welcome to sit around the fire and to partake of his hospitality? We've made that mistake of saying, yeah, you can't come around the fire. It's not for you. The result is that there are some throughout our history that have been kept away and continue to be. But this approach, and this is what I want to focus on this morning, also affects our view of our own worth in the eyes of God. Because we know ourselves best. And often feel that our failures and our struggles, our attitudes, our responses to our circumstances weren't what God desired of us. And all of a sudden we find ourselves living in the shame and in the guilt that we're disqualified from his grace. I don't see one example in scripture where Jesus ever shamed anyone. If you want to point that out, and some of you will, I know one of you will find it, even though it's not there, where Jesus shamed anyone. And we allow the shame and the guilt and the disappointment in ourselves to somehow disqualify us from his grace. And I want us to know this morning that nothing could be further from the truth. That all of us, and I don't use the word all without regard, all of us are welcome around the fire. All of us. All of us are extended the gracious hospitality of Jesus. Now perhaps you haven't handled your season of perplexity like you should have. Perhaps you're disappointed with yourself. Perhaps you're confused and you're questioning God. Perhaps you've given up on God's purpose, plan, promise for your life. These things in no way disqualify us From sharing the hospitality of Jesus. They're not the goal. But they're the reality for most of us. Jesus creates moments. Where he comes to us. Right where we are. In the midst of of our raw emotion and the reality of our circumstances and our knowledge of our failure and our knowledge of we should have done better, he walks to us in the middle of that and he invites us to rediscover the things that we have doubted and lost sight of. His promises are still his promises. His purposes are are still his purposes. His plans are still his plans regardless of what your circumstances say and how poorly you may have managed them. And this breakfast around the fire serves as an important reminder to all of us of the grace of Jesus in not disqualifying us for getting it wrong and messing it up and giving another opportunity. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. All of us on our journey of following Jesus will go through moments and seasons of perplexity when the unexpected circumstances of our lives cause us to doubt and question whether God's promises for us are still His promises for us. Unexpected circumstances do not diminish God's promise, God's purpose, and God's plan for our lives. Would you stand with me this morning? And I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. And if you have a specific prayer need this morning, we want to pray for you. But I know in my spirit this morning there are people in this room that you at a moment in time believed that God was had something specific and special and you just knew that you knew that God had promised this to you that this was going to be your life and your reality and when you look around it just seems like yeah that could have happened if this hadn't happened if this person hadn't died If my spouse hadn't left me, if my children hadn't made poor decisions, if I hadn't gotten cancer, if I wasn't diagnosed with depression, if these things hadn't have happened, it could have been good, but now it's gone. And I want you to know, no, it isn't. God doesn't need a perfect you. Because if he did, he would never have made the promise to you in the first place. Because, wake up call, you're not perfect. You're a mess. They teach you this in Preaching 101. You're a mess. And I just encourage you this morning God, in his word, is telling you, and he's telling me, it's not over. In fact, in some ways, it's just getting started. It's not over. You closed the book. You've settled back. You've given up. It's not over. It's not over. Unless you decide it's over. Then it's over. But you have to decide that trusting The promise and the purpose and the plan of God for your life is not going to be taken because you gave up when the circumstances changed and you found yourself in a fog. But that's your decision. Carlene, would you lead us? Prayer team, would you come? I just encourage you to let God speak whatever truth he wants to speak into your individual life today in these next few moments because some of you some of you gave up just a little bit too soon thank you that you are good Lord when we read your word we're reminded that one of the great acts that you do is restoring what the locusts have eaten that when the enemy comes in And destroys and consumes the very life source, the things that matter. That your promises are that you can restore that. You are the God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances. You're a God who never gives up on his people who never abandons his promises to his children. And Lord, I thank you that you are a redeeming God. A redeeming God. And I thank you because all of us in this room need your redeeming. We need your redemption. We need you to restore what's been stolen and eaten. We need you to restore what's been destroyed. We need you to give hope and purpose that the circumstances of our lives have eaten and taken from us. Lord, today we stand. We stand believing that our God Will deliver us. We believe you will. We believe that there's still more to be written. We believe that there are chapters still. We believe that there are testimonies waiting to break forth from our lives as we declare the goodness of God in our story of what was and what you did and how you changed us. God, for that one who might be in this room today, too weak to believe, that there's any hope still for them, any meaning, any purpose, would you remind them today? You have so much for them that they couldn't even begin to understand it if you showed it to them. And so, Father, I pray that we would leave this place this this morning believing to the core of our being that we serve a God who's not finished yet, that we serve a God who has not brought us this far to only bring us this far, but is still writing our story. Lord, would you help us to find the faith and the trust and the obedience to lift our heads that have been beaten down so many times to see with clarity your hand and your presence. Lord, even though I may be the one delivering the words this morning, you have come here personally. You didn't do it by proxy. You're here in this room, right beside us, because you know that my words or anyone else's words or the words of a song are not enough. It has to be you making an appearance that makes the difference. And I thank you this morning that you've made an appearance, that you're right here, right in the midst of us, speaking truth into the lies of our lives, speaking hope into our despair, speaking time into what we thought was expired. I pray this and thank you for it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning.